Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this would, well, yeah, this would be the last Q&A of the year, and I know my daughter said she had a question, which I don't remember now, so I'll ask you to repeat it, and um, then we'll see what other questions might be in the room. Lord willing, next week we'll be able to hear from Brother Chris, right? Yes, yeah, we'll go back through Acts before the uh, end of the year. Okay. Grace Face, what was your question? Oh, yeah. Okay, so we're going to Matthew. Even if you don't find the actual passage, if you can remember the question, then. If an unsaved man marries an unsaved woman and then they divorce, and then that lost man becomes a Christian, should he basically try to go back to his wife? Okay, so if the, so the lost man, he marries a lost woman, they get divorced, then that lost man becomes a Christian. question is, should he wait until his divorced wife dies before he remarries so that he does not commit adultery, cause her to commit adultery. Good question. So Matthew chapter 5, is that where you were reading? Okay, Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is he is giving instruction he is turning the light on into the the kingdom of God what do the citizens of the kingdom of God look like how do they act what is the standard what is life like for the child of God and he covers a various assortment of areas, all that the law deal with. Uh, sometimes these laws were being um, completely ignored, and other times they were being twisted to the uh, satisfaction of the religious leaders of the day. And so he confronts anger and confronts lust. And then in Matthew 5, verse 31... He comes to the issue of divorce. Excuse me. So he says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, quick Bible trivia question. Who said that? Jesus said, it was also said. Moses, this is in the law. So is there anything wrong with 
the law. Anything twisted in the law. No, so this is a quotation um, taken from, uh, where is that, Deuteronomy, is that right? Sorry? Deuteronomy 24.1. So we get our, our reference. Deuteronomy 24.1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. If she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So that was the law regarding divorce. One, it was permitted and it was regulated by God out of mercy. Back to the Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality. Now, remember there in Deuteronomy 24, it says if if they find some indecency in her or hates her. So those two terms are so up to interpretation that two schools of thought arose when it came to the rabbis. And they interpreted find indecency in her to mean, one did, anything that they did not like. And literally, there are a list of examples of what indecency could mean if if your wife burned the food. Uh, Actually, it's not funny, but many of these things have to do with food Um, It could be if she talked back, if she was disrespectful, if she gained weight, if she didn't wear the things you like, if she didn't decorate the house you like. Basically, you had anything that you could think of to put this woman away. There was another school of thought that said, no, it has to be something more serious. But the point is that people were, men were just writing their wives certificates of divorce for this, that, and the other, Um, very similar to our day today, Uh, irreconcilable differences, they get on my nerves, I just can't talk to them, we just don't get along, certificates of divorce. Now the woman who received this certificate of divorce um, was, in that culture, in that society, was, well, in many ways unwanted. Uh, A man would want a virgin to be his wife. He would want a a woman who did not have children. Um, That was the desire. And so there was a lot of unprotected, left, uh, deserted women. But the certificate of divorce protected them to say, okay, this woman uh, did not um, commit adultery. Uh, she, She didn't just wander away. So that was to protect her. So just trying to get a theology and doctrine of divorce according to the word of God. Now, to your specific question, here's an unbeliever. There's a divorce. Uh, We're not told why they divorced. It could be some of these, he found some indecency in her, or it could be on the grounds that the Lord Jesus gives sexual immorality, that there was adultery. Um, That is the grounds for divorce to be permitted. Not commanded, but permitted. Now, if this man becomes a believer, and now his wife, is she a believer or an unbeliever? She's still lost. Okay, she's still lost, and she's unmarried. 
What does he do? Does he wait until she dies so that he can marry someone else? If he doesn't wait until she dies and he marries someone else, has he committed adultery? Does he force her to commit adultery by allowing her to marry someone else? Well, Jesus is very clear. Anyone and everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. Why? Because, uh, and again, we know that 1 Corinthians also allows for desertion. If a, if a spouse leaves, just walks out, I'm done with you, I'm done with this marriage, and they just leave, then the believer is not bound. But we'll stick with the uh, sexual immorality reason here. Um, If that's not the reason for the certificate of divorce, if that's not the reason for the divorce, then in God's eyes, they are still married. So anyone who joins with them in another kind of union, according to God, is committing adultery. Or being um, I think I don't know if the word was forced to commit adultery. My uh, Bible is kind of all torn up here, so I'm trying to read through it. Uh, because God's mind is clear. Marriage is till death do you part. And the only way you can get out of this marriage is if someone dies or if someone commits adultery or deserts them. And again, in that situation, you are not commanded to divorce, but you're permitted to divorce. Therefore, uh, if that unbeliever who becomes a believer, if the reason for their divorce was not sexual immorality or desertion, then in God's mind, they're still married. And so, what should he do as a believer? The Lord opens his eyes, saves his his soul. He should go back to his wife. Let her know what has taken place. Seek to reconcile. And at that point, we can fast forward to 1 Corinthians and see if she says, yes, I want to be with you, or if she says, I'm done, I don't want anything to do with you, and now she has deserted. And in that case, the man is free to remarry without adultery being committed by him. Does that make sense? Could you do that again for me, please? Let's say um, a wife professing to be a believer but divorces her husband. Is he free then to remarry? On what grounds? Um, like because she left. Oh yeah, yeah. On the biblical grounds. It's biblical grounds, and we and we know that God recognizes divorce as a real thing. How? How do we know that God actually recognizes that divorce is a genuine thing that happens where there is a real separating of the husband and the wife? Deuteronomy 24. Think about it, right? Here's this couple, um, Bob and Larry, uh, Laura, sorry, God forbid. Um, Bob and Laura, they're married. And then a certificate of divorce is written. So now Laura marries uh, Dexter. Okay, 
So now Laura and Dexter are married, but Dexter writes Laura's certificate of divorce. The Bible says Laura can't go back to Bob, and Bob can't go back to Laura. That's how final God's thought was regarding divorce. It's not as though, no, this is still his wife. She's just married to another guy. No, it says she has been defiled. How has she been defiled? Because she has entered into a covenant with another man. They have started their own family in God's mind. That chasm is so far, she's not supposed to go back to that other man. Now, again, that's old covenant. That's law. In the new covenant, you know, Old covenant, you're supposed to stone your children if they go after other gods. New covenant, if your children go after other gods, you go after them with the gospel. We do understand that we are under the, the, the beautiful new covenant of grace. Uh, but you can see the principle there of God's mind that divorce really is something that he recognizes in a final way, so much so that that woman couldn't even go back to her original husband. Um, Yes, ma'am. It's an interesting thing the way that the Bible talks. All of these cases from Deuteronomy to Jesus, it's all the husband divorces his wife. However, when we get to Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians, in fact, I keep referencing it. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians. So the question is, well, what if, what if the roles are reversed? I mean, we keep hearing about this wife who's doing all this and the husband is kind of the the innocent bystander, but what if it's the husband who's done the wrong and the wife is <clears throat> on the other side? First um, Corinthians chapter 7. And we can start with verse... Start with verse 12. 1 Corinthians seven twelve. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, meaning this is an area of marriage, divorce, relationship that Jesus did not specifically preach about in his earthly ministry. It doesn't mean that Paul's in disagreement with the Lord. It doesn't mean Paul's giving his own opinions, as many people think. That's what's happening here. Um, Paul is, by the Spirit, continuing the revelation uh, as he is writing here. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So there you have... The difference, all the previous uh, cases was the husband writes the certificate of divorce. But here we see the wife being told not to divorce, showing it's not just the husband who has this ability, but the wife as well. And uh, and there they're being told not to as long as there's a consent in the other party who is an unbeliever. And this is something that's very important when it comes to the, the, the question of divorcing. I want you to notice who's the one who leaves, departs, separates, wants to be done with the marriage. Notice who it always is. Start verse 12 again. 
To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So the commandment to the Christian is, you don't divorce. If you're, even if you're married to an unbeliever, how much more if you're married to a believer? Now, you have permission if your spouse commits adultery, but not a commandment. And if you're married to a believer and that believer says, I'm done, I leave, well, the, the Bible doesn't, wouldn't call that person a believer says that this unbelieving spouse is the one who would separate, who would leave, who would abandon the marriage. But the believing spouse is told, as, as long as they're willing to consent to live with you, then endure, love, seek to show Christ to this person. And that, again, that doesn't mean that believers don't get into all kinds of turmoil and conflict and marriage, clearly, we do. But there is something in the heart of the child of God that says, I am going to follow Christ. And marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. And Christ does not abandon his church. And the church does not abandon Christ. And so marriage is for life. That's what guides the believer. Yes. Would I advise the husband to remarry the wife? If he's married to someone else, no, I wouldn't. Uh, yeah, and that. Thank you. This this is where things start getting tricky. <clears throat> if if people divorce. It's always a sad thing. People divorce and they marry other people. And then the light of the truth of the word of God dawns upon them and they realize, "Uh uh-oh, we didn't have permission to do this. Should they then break up those families to come back together because they never should have done it in the first place? Put y'all in the hot seat. What do y'all think? No. Why not? Right. Right. The way that we repent as, as believers is we go forward. Now, if it's possible for you to make restitution, think of someone like Zacchaeus, who he had defrauded people. And when the Lord saved him, what did he do? He sought to give restitution for all of his defrauding. He didn't say, well, that's in the past. That doesn't matter. I'm not going to deal with it. No. When you are born again and it dawns on you how you've sinned against other people, it's only right and good to seek to go back and make peace and ask for forgiveness, all the things that is very Christian to do. Um, However, when it comes to the issue of marriage and divorce, uh, one, we have no examples of this in scripture, and so we can't say we can look to that and follow that. Um, two, it would actually be promoting more divorce by having two families or one break up um, in order to 
come back together. Uh, when there was a departing, Paul said, you're not bound. The believer is not enslaved. Now, if they're both unmarried, if they're both not connected in, in marriage to someone else, and the Lord saves them, I mean, that could be a very glorious thing for them to come back together and marry in the Lord because they didn't do that before. But it was, it's, it's not my understanding, it would not be my counsel to break up those families in order for them to come back together. Uh, do you have any more insight on that or is there a follow-up question to it? Yeah, I mean, if, if a man deserts his family, he is worse than an unbeliever. He's denied the faith. He's left them. He's not providing for them. He's not shepherding. He's not leading. And so it would be the righteous thing for him to go back and restore. I mean, we see something of that even with Hosea going he didn't leave. Gomer left to chase after the world. The Lord commanded him to go after her and bring her back home, and he did. And the gospel was illustrated in that very difficult marriage. Say grace, man, you've opened up a can of worms here with this divorce question. Okay, any other uh, questions about that? Yes, thank you. It actually flows into the Christmas story a bit. So there is something called the permanence view of marriage. There are three views that I'm aware of. One is the permanence view. Think of a permanent marker. Uh, that means there, is, there are no exceptions, no escape. Marriage is till death, whether you are a believer, an unbeliever, if this person is a serial adulterer, if they are a child abuser, if they're in prison, if they are locked away somewhere, if they, whatever. There is no case for you to ever divorce your spouse, period. And they, the argument is the only time in the New Testament, where we see Jesus giving an exception is in Matthew, which is what we just read, right? Uh, except on the grounds of sexual immorality. Now, the reason I said that this flows into the Christmas story is because that term uh, regarding the sexual immorality is... In, in their understanding, a direct reference to Joseph and Mary. And in the Jewish custom, it wasn't law, but it became Jewish custom, that there was a betrothal period. Right? Any of you have seen the Nativity story? Uh, in that film, they are illustrating this betrothal period where they're not married, they're not husband and wife. They haven't had their ceremony. They have not engaged in the, the marriage bed. But they are to act as though they are married. They're to be committed to one another. And if one of them commits uh, sexual immorality, the betrothal is off. But not marriage, the betrothal. And so their argument is, this is why... Both of these um, passages are in the same 
gospel. But if you go to the other gospels, Jesus just speaks very directly. Marriage is for life, period. And anybody who marries a divorced person commits adultery, period. And therefore, John Piper, Vody Bauckham, I'm sure there are others. Those probably are the biggest names that I'm aware of in the permanence view. That's why they hold to that. Um, there's another view that says uh, only adultery and desertion are permitted for divorce. And then there's the more liberal, <clears throat> seeker-friendly stuff that says, no, we understand that there's all kind of irreconcilable differences that it can occur in a marriage, and therefore there's, there's a lot of reasons why, why people can get divorced, even Christian people. Um, does that help? I do not hold to the permanence view. I did wrestle with it, especially after hearing Bodhi's message and John Piper's, and I said, whoa, I need, to have a, I need to have my position grounded on this. This is before I was even pastoring. Uh, but I do not find that to be completely consistent with all of Scripture. Okay. Any other questions? Doesn't have to be about divorce. Not that it's nothing wrong with that. You got started and you leave. <laughs> nice. No, I'm just kidding. What happens to the children? It's a very good question. Historically, the man was the breadwinner, and so the children would stay with him, especially if it was a boy, because that boy would carry his name, carry on the legacy, he would take over the family business, he would lay hands and the blessing and all of that. The daughter would also... Uh, Again, kind of taking just, just historic, taking the spiritual new heart out of it. The daughters were often, um, there was a dowry attached, and a daughter would be given to another family, and their daughter would marry into, and so there was, it was a lot. Marriage was very often not about love, but about convenience, business, um, and things of that sort. This is why there were arranged marriages. People marry people you never met. Why? Because my father knows you and you could benefit this. And, and so the father would have, as the patriarch, would have that authority to do that. The wife would be sent out. Uh, you're no longer my wife. These are your children, but they stay here because the man has the house, the man has the money, the man has the name. But she has that certificate, and that certificate is her safety so that she wouldn't be stoned in the street as a, an adulteress. Uh, yeah. Sadly, that's very much the way things went. And still go in many parts of the world. And Jesus comes and he gives a unique dignity to women that no one else did. Gave them honor and respect that was really eye opening in his day and time. Yeah. Nobody wins in a divorce, everybody loses, especially the children. All of us from divorce homes can say, Amen. Okay. Any other questions? I, I have a question. I, I remember my pastor, when a pastor, you know, a, a pastor, this man was an unbeliever, right? Lived his life and everything as a young man without the Lord, of course. And then he gets saved, and he's called to ministry. 
Yes, that's. Was there more to it? Um, Sorry, I mean to interrupt yeah, you. I mean, I, Right. I have, uh, I have not witnessed it personally with a friend of mine, but I have read accounts or I have heard it, that kind of thing. And it, where it comes from is the language in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 2, because the qualifications for an elder, for a pastor, for an overseer, a bishop, all the same person, different terms, it says that he must be a one, what? The man of one wife. Oh, I'm sorry, the husband of one wife, one woman, man. And so they say, see, you can only have one. But what if she died? Wouldn't that make him a two woman man wouldn't he have been now the husband of two wives or Adoniram Judson didn't he have three his wives kept dying uh, would that make him disqualified see there's a misunderstanding of what that means what that means is when this man is married to her he is married to her he's committed to her uh, he's not going out being with all these other women he's committed to one and so it really does depend on the church. There are some churches, uh, there are some believers who think the pastoral office is such a supernatural thing that from the time you were born, similar to the Jeremiah, I've set you apart from your mother's womb, right? Everything in your life is going to be leading up to this pastoral office, meaning you will be kept from any kind of like, major sin, any kind of scandal. You won't have this really horrible background because you have to be above reproach even to the outsider. And no one should be able to point to anything in your life at any period of your life, unbeliever or believer, where they can say that's not above reproach. And therefore, and, and there are, in fact, yeah, I just remembered some men that I know personally who do believe that, and that's why they, don't, they did not and would not vote for certain pastoral candidates because they say, no, we can listen, look at this point of your life, even though you were an unbeliever, and that's not above reproach. And that can come back and be a scandal later, therefore you're disqualified. Others say that doesn't have anything to do with this. So it really does depend on the believers who are taking part in the, um, the appointing of the elder and the philosophy of that church. Uh, It is, the, it is and was the custom of the church, uh, Grace Community Church in San Antonio, that there's a, there's a bunch of opportunities for the church to get to know the elder who's in question. And one of those is a literal sit-down with the entire church to ask any and every question that you want to ask. And I did that three times because of San Antonio, it was Austin, and then there was Temple. It was the time. And so anything about marriage, anything about personal life, work ethic, money, doctrine, history, past, you name it, anything can come out and... 
How long was I sitting in that chair in San Antonio? A couple hours. And you're right on the spot. Answer. And so that is one way um, that, because if the church is going to say amen, they should, they should be able to do that with a clear conscience. They should, be, they should know enough about this man who is going to be uh, shepherding your souls. Now, if the standard to be an elder is you have to be perfect, well, then nobody's qualified. Um, Yes, sir, ma'am. But well, Lewis is. <laughs> oh. um, I think it's, I like the way San Antonio like, do the questions. And um, it does open the door for people to get to know who they are voting for. Because after the question, you have to vote if you want that person as your pastor or not. And I think like we've been through situations where we know people who are just elected serving, but a lot of the people don't even know like anything about them unless you're really close to them. I was in a church and um, the pastor, he had been, one of the pastors had been serving for years, and then all of a sudden his daughter came from Haiti, and we were like, we didn't know he had a daughter in Haiti. Mm-hmm. It turned out that, that this was his daughter from a previous relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it can be, well, there's a two sides to every coin, right? For some, the more you know about the, the pastor or his family, the more fuel that people have to uh, gossip, slander, use it against them. People do that too. Uh, the more vulnerable you are, the more you are vulnerable to be betrayed and hurt uh, and pastoring seeking to not make this sound self-serving in any way, but pastoring is very difficult and it can be a very lonely road and you can pour into people and be very vulnerable and let them into your life and see this, that, and the other and then they can use those very things to betray you and turn against you, spread false information, which is one of the reasons why no charge against an elder is to be admitted unless two or three witnesses, right? Because people can get upset. So it is, I, I love the wisdom of the way that San Antonio does it, and I think it's helpful. It's not perfect, because what if someone doesn't ask the right question? And what if the, the pastor is just exhausted, and he doesn't think to bring it up? And then, okay, he's brought in, and then this information came out. Why didn't you tell us? Oh, I wasn't trying to keep it from you, but I had been in the chair for four hours, and my mind was just mush at that point, and I didn't think of it. So a lot can happen in that situation. Uh, But, yes, I do think it is a very good and godly and transparent way of appointing men to lead it's important. Yes, ma'am.
Absolutely. Peter's another one, right? He betrayed the Lord three times. What were you going to say? I'm saying that that is the philosophy of some churches, and it's their way of thinking. I think that's going to be, you're going to be very limited in who you can appoint, but, I mean, one person honors the day, one person recognizes the day, one person sees every day alike, do all for the glory of God. The the heart, and I, I have a certain brother in mind, certain family in mind, who think this way. And uh, they didn't vote for me because I had a history before I came to Christ. Therefore, um, they wanted to make sure that the man who stood behind the pulpit was as pure as could be. And I don't think that's a bad desire. I, 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 I again, disagree but I see the heart, and I, 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 they, want, they want the Lord to be glorified. They want the church to be strengthened, and I completely understand that. Yeah, again, the, the, the point that uh, my wife brings up is, a, is an excellent point, and I wasn't going to argue with the individual, you know, saying, okay, praise the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, pastors and their wives still argue. Their children still disobey. Pastors get angry. They, I mean, we are very much like every other Christian. his wife divorced him? Again, that's a big question. Why? Was she an unbeliever? Was that discovered later? Remember Paul Washer, his wife, oh, I was an unbeliever. He didn't know that when he married her. She was actually saved in San Antonio when he was preaching uh, at GCC. He didn't know that when he married her. And if, if a man marries a woman and she turns out to be an unbeliever and she leaves him or she is just unfaithful and he's trying to bring her back to him and she's like, I, I want what I want. Well, was he at fault? Did he sin? I mean, certainly, as a husband, the question I would be asking, which I seek to ask myself is, what have I done to contribute to this behavior? I don't always ask myself that question, right? But is there anything that I've done to contribute to the behavior that I'm confronting, whether it's with my children, my wife, with one of you, my family, anybody? Is there anything I did? Do I have a part in this? That's, I'm trying to see a log. But every sin doesn't have two parties, some people are just bent on doing their own thing in spite of what is being offered to them. And how can you stop that? Moses was an excellent leader, but the people didn't, many of the people didn't want to follow him. The Lord didn't fault Moses for their 
rebellion. He faulted them and kept wanting to kill them. <laughs> he didn't want to kill Moses for their rebellion. He didn't fault Moses. Moses was interceding on behalf of them. So I think the reality is the question has to be asked, what are the details of it? Was this a man who was pushing his wife toward this because he was hard and critical and cruel and demeaning and on and on, right? Was, was he just a huge hypocrite? Was he just a liar? Was he just a... What, what was happening behind the scenes? But if all the dust settles, and it can be said, obviously this was not a perfect man. There are none except for Christ. But he was faithful to her. He really did try. He really did try to, to save this marriage. Then that's going to be on the church to say, is that enough for us? Um, I'm not advocating for congregational-led churches, but what I am saying is that I do believe that it's wise for the congregation to have a say and input. Because as Paul said, I think I have the Spirit too, right? We all have the Spirit. And that's, that's a good thing. Oh, any final burning questions? I, I, I thought these would be more Christmas questions this morning, but... <laughs> Praise God. Amen. I say what is on the heart is good. Do you have one? Oh boy. Somebody says Solomon. You're like, I brace yourself. Go on. Never know. Mm-hmm. 700 wives and 300 concubines.